See that? Okay, as they're coming up, hey, everybody, thank you so much for being here. Welcome here. Uh, excited to be here this morning. So, okay, I, I'm going to talk with you guys to start off this morning. I have something that, that applies to, where, to your lives, okay? You guys, you guys excited to hear what I'm going to say? Yeah. yeah. This is different, isn't it? Depends. Depends, yeah. Okay, Kramer. <laughs> All right, okay, pause right there. Okay, hold on, time out, time out. They've never done this before, right? They're, they're kind of like, wait a minute. I thought Sprouts was for us. What's, what's Jason going to say, right? They are probably more attuned and attentive than they've ever been on a Sunday morning up in here. Now, downstairs, it's a different thing, right? Because that's for them. But this, this is for you guys, right? But did your guys' attention get a bump too? You guys are probably a little bit more like, oh my gosh, what are they going to say? You don't normally, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, what's Quirin going to say today, right? Like, but this morning you're kind of like, oh, this is going to be good. What's he going to say? All right? Okay, we there? All right, guys, you can go to Sprouts. You're off the hook. You get to go have fun. Kids scare me. Here we go. Thank you, guys. You're good sports. And by the way, Kristen, you're in Sprouts this morning. I was like, Kristen, who's in Sprouts? She goes, I think Julie is. I was like, okay, she waits. No, wait, I am. <laughs> so, okay, so what I just did there, it kind of helps us get into the mindset and experience of where we're starting back into Matthew this week, okay? Because um, Jesus, he's been getting ready. He's been preparing himself, right? John the Baptist has been going around the countryside saying, prepare the way for the kingdom is near, right? And there's all this preparation, and then things kick off where Jesus gets baptized. He goes into a period of testing and temptation, and he comes out of that. And then he comes and he starts calling the disciples. And as soon as he starts calling the disciples, he starts healing people and delivering people from, from sickness and, and demons and all sorts of crazy stuff, right? And, and the word gets out. And so where we pick up this morning in, in Matthew chapter 5, there is a large crowd that is, has come together to see, to hear, and to experience what Jesus was going to do, what he was going to say, but most of all, who he really is. And so where we pick up in chapter 5, Jesus gathers his, his closest followers, and he pauses, right? It says he goes up onto the mountain, and we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, and, he, and he pauses, and he's talking to his disciples in plain sight of everybody. And I think that's a strategic thing on Jesus's part. Yes, this is meant for his disciples, but it's also meant for everybody else that's looking in on this conversation, all right? So we're going to dig back into Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1 and 2. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up onto the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. Okay, again, Let's, let's get into this mindset, right? We're, we're going up AF Canyon, right up to there, and, and Jesus pulls us aside, but the whole valley has gathered to listen to what was going on there. Now, what's interesting is that uh, I stand up to teach, right? That's kind of in our culture. That's, it's sort of like, oh, the teacher's standing up. He's going to get started, right? But in that day, actually, they would, they would read something, and then they would sit down and that's when the teaching started. So when Jesus sits down, that's kind of like everybody's like, oh my gosh, what's he going to say, right? He starts off pretty interestingly. This is called the Beatitudes. 
Verse 3, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So Jesus is going to paint a picture in this, in this sermon, in this teaching, the difference between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom that he is bringing, the kingdom of God. And this first one, or the poor, for they realize their need for him, is a shift from pride and independence to complete dependence on God. Verse 4, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is a shift from happiness as at all costs, and happiness is the greatest good, right? Because our world preaches that. Just be happy. We'll do whatever makes you happy. Be more yourself, because that's happy. Happy, 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 right? And happiness is the greatest good. But Jesus says, no, shift to weakness and vulnerability, That's the good news. Verse 5, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Shift from power to humility. Verse 6, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, or actually the real word there is righteousness, being right with God, for they will be satisfied. This is a shift from hedonistic and self-focused pleasure to desiring to be right with God and to be in line with his truth. Verse 7, God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Instead of pursuing this callous justice of, I insist on justice, it actually shifts to mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. A lot of times we think, well, I'm a good person. I deserve good things. Really? How good really are we on a global scale? We might feel good about ourselves, but let's go take a trip around the world, and then let's see how good we are, right? Like, we deserve because we're rebellious against God, we, redes- we deserve his, his judgment. That's, that's just the reality of it, right? Our kids, when they mess up, they deserve discipline, right? Just like we did when we were kids and our, our parents did when they were kids. It's just what we do as humans, right? But instead of pursuing this calloused justice, he says, value mercy instead. Verse 8, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Instead of deception and manipulation, we need to shift to focusing on having a pure heart that's free of corruption, deception, and manipulation. Verse 9, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Again, instead of this preoccupation of personal gain at the expense of others, we need to give ourselves to actively working for the peace of those around us and those we haven't even met yet. Verse 10, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Instead of focusing on safety and security as the greatest good, again, because happiness, if if I want to be happy, I need to be safe and secure. And that's the greatest good, right? Instead of that, we need to focus on being willing to do what's right no matter the cost. And then verses 11 and 12, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. We need a shift from being defensive and always in attack mode to having an eternal perspective. Pain is temporary. Eternity with our Heavenly Father is eternal, right? It might hurt for a season, but it's going to be nothing compared to the glory that we will receive when we are able to be face-to-face with our Creator, right? It's clear that Jesus' kingdom looks a little bit different than the worldly kingdom, right? Even in this opening salvo, like, it's, it's like, oh, 
all the nationalistic, all the, the religious, all the, the legalistic, all these things like that that we attach to, to God and what it means to, it's kind of like, oh, it's a shift. He, he changes things around. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. In Matthew 5, 13 through 16, we actually covered this a couple weeks ago in a series, so I won't hit it again here. But we're called to be salt and light. We're called to be agents of change in the world. There is no passivity. We are actively supposed to engage the world around us to change it. Not for ourselves, but for God, right? But then things get pretty interesting. Jesus kind of I'll be honest, when I read this this week, I, I, I don't know why it caught me so off guard. I hope it catches you off guard like it did me, because it's kind of a, a twist. Jesus says in verse 17, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purposes are achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is where the Pharisees, the legalists, the religious elite that were in the crowd are like, okay, he was scaring me here with the whole be poor, be humble, be gentle, be merciful. Like, that's crap, right? Like, we want power. We want perfection. We want performance. We want, we want all these things. Okay, he, just when I thought you couldn't get any worth, you go, go totally redeem yourself, right? Like, <laughs> like they're kind of like, oh, whew, I was afraid this guy was going to cause problems for us. But he seems to be on board with us because he's like, even the, the, the Greek here is, is really cool because um, the, the smallest letter, it's actually, the, I don't like the NL, uh, NLT translation on it. It says the smallest letter and the smallest pen stroke. That's the, the smallest letters in Greek is the iota, and in the, in the Hebrew, it's the yod, okay? And they literally are like what we would have as an I. So it's the tiniest little letter in our alphabet. But then it's even the smallest pen stroke. In, in Greek, it's, it's like a little reep right on top. It's like dotting the I. In Hebrew, it's all the dots and squiggles. If you've ever studied or looked at Hebrew before, it is the most infuriating thing I've ever studied in my life. I, I was supposed to learn it in one semester of seminary, and, and that, pro, that, that course gave me more problems than any other course. I literally would lose my stuff, and I would stomp out of my office, and I would be like, ah, because all it is is dots and squiggles. Greek is easy to learn because at least there have not, and this is like, if you look, the tiniest little dot can not only change the, the pronunciation, it can change the meaning of the word. And so Jesus is saying, every little I must be dotted in the law. Nothing will pass away. And so the Pharisees are sitting there like, yes, this is what we've been talking. The law is life, right? The, the life is law. And he's getting this. And he's saying, do it, live it, teach it, demand it. This is what is so, maybe this Jesus guy isn't so bad. But then in verse 20, he goes and screws it all up. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Bam! He builds him up. He sucks him in like, yeah, what? What are you talking about, bud? Come on. 
right? He, he slams it home and he says, they're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. So you better have a righteousness that's better than them. Now everybody's confused. Everybody's kind of like, what in the world is this Jesus guy getting at? Things just got really offensive and really impossible. Because the religious elite are offended that they're said, I don't get to go to heaven. And then everybody else is kind of like, if they're not even good enough to go to heaven, how will I ever be able to? Myself, I know the struggles that I have. And that was not me. I don't know what that was. <laughs> You're just so used to that kind of humor from me that like, I think somehow our sound system, Drew's back there. There we go. There we go. Wow. <laughs> Things got really offensive really quickly there. But the key, we dismissed it in verse 17. Jesus gives us the key. Verse 17, he says, Don't misunderstand why I've come. I came to accomplish or complete their purpose. Now Jesus moves on to explaining six specific and practical examples from everyday life at the purpose of the law. You guys ready for this? These are fun ones. None of us have ever dealt with these before. Anger, sex, marriage, honesty, revenge, and forgiveness. If you've never dealt with those, please throw a stone at me, right? <laughs> We've all dealt with some of these at least, right? And so Jesus specifically picks six instances of what the law is supposed to be about. We're going to dig into this. Here we go. Now, what you're going to see is in each six of these, Jesus starts off, you have heard. Jesus appeals to what they have heard their entire life, what they've devoted themselves to, what they have taught each other and their kids, what their parents taught them. You have heard. They're like, yep, I've heard this. But then he says, but I say, he flips things around to bring them into their true focus and perspective. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. And they're all sitting there saying, I haven't ever killed anybody that they can prove of, right? And they've never found the bodies anyhow, right? And so they're like, yeah, I've, I've, I've obeyed that law. I've heard that I shouldn't murder, and so I didn't kill anybody. I'm good to go next, right? But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if, and if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, what's interesting here is that this Greek word for anger is orgizo, and it means seething, simmering, brooding bitterness. It's nurturing that natural emotion instead of killing it right? Instead of bringing it into place, we allow it to spin out of control. And it violently erupts. And we verbally, physically, emotionally, spiritually launch out at those around us. It gains control of us and replaces Jesus as the Lord of our life. That's what anger does, everybody. Anybody ever experienced that before? Again, if you've ever driven with me, you've heard people are stupid, aka people are idiots, right? I do that all the time, guys. This applies to me. So if it doesn't apply to you, at least I'm getting something from it, right? Anger replaces Jesus as the boss of our lives, and it violates Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
We don't just have a murder problem. We have an anger problem. Murder is simply the fruit of anger. My youth pastor would always say, instead of seeing how close we can get to the edge of the cliff without falling over it, maybe we should say, there's a cliff right there. I don't want to get too close to it. Well, how, how angry is angry enough that I'm not sinning and going to go to hell, right? Like, like maybe instead of asking that question, it's kind of like, why do I struggle with anger? How can I deal with this? How can I get rid of anger? In my Yeah, I can't stop the birds from flying over my head, but I can stop them from nesting, right? Like, like we need to have more of that kind of a mindset. But here's what we're up against. Our culture thrives on anger. Think of social media. Think about news broadcasts. Think about everything that we're bombarded with. It's specifically to incite strong emotions, a.k.a. anger. Anger is one of the most addictive emotions that we can experience, and marketing companies have capitalized on that. They will specifically, whether it be it stirs up the anger for your cause or it attacks your cause to stir up your anger. Why? Because it gets us locked in. And we will follow whatever it is that goes against our enemy. It, we, we, we bifurcate, we polarize into opposing camps to where we see so red that we can't even talk through things that we disagree on. We are held accountable for our thoughts, not just our actions. It's not just not taking the final step in the logical process that we've been on. Does that make sense? Jesus says that our, that our anger will drag us right into the fires of hell. Now, this word hell is literally the word Gehenna. Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnon south of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnon is a burning trash heap, never-ending fire. People would take their, their trash out to the edge of, of Jerusalem, and they would dump it in this valley. And they would throw their, their, their food, their rotten food garbage. They would, you know, whatever it is, human waste. They would take dead animals. They would, I mean, this is the most disgusting place you could ever imagine on the earth, times a million. And then on top of that, it's burning, Right? And so Jesus tries to think, what is the worst single experience on the face of this earth that I can use to describe hell? Separation from God for eternity. It's like Gehenna. And when we're angry, we allow anger to drag us into that burning pile of garbage. What a graphic and terrifying and tragic symbolic representation of the reality of what happens when we're separated from Jesus. Now, the irony here is that the Pharisees are kind of like, well, we haven't murdered anybody, but what was going on in their hearts? Eventually, they were going to kill Jesus. The murder of Jesus was just the natural progression of where their anger was taking them. Now, Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 5, 23 through 26 gives some, read that later on. It gives some great examples of what it takes to drop everything, whether it be uh, uh, some, we're, we're, we're in debt to each other or we're on the way to a court. It's going to like do whatever we can to find reconciliation because if we don't, we will feed our anger. And anger will either lock us up in debt or lock us up in prison. Instead, we need to seek reconciliation and freedom for the both of us. Okay, so that's anger. The others will go quickly. 27 through 30. You have heard that com the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. 
But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose a part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose, part, to, to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Again, it says, hey, sex outside of marriage is not good. It's a sin. It's bad. We shouldn't do it. God knew what he was doing when he gave us the gift of sex. It was purposeful. It was intentional. It was a gift. But yet, just like we do with gifts, we misuse it and we abuse it. And when we do that, we, we, we dishonor the giver of that gift. We don't just dishonor the gift. We dishonor the giver of that gift. But Jesus says it's not just the physical action, acting out on this. It's the desire itself outside of marriage. Whatever it takes to stay away from entertaining the steps uh, towards breaking that, that gift that he gives us outside of God's design, like we need, to, we need to be smart. We need to be aggressive. Now, it's not saying literally pluck out our eye. There's been movements in the history of, the, of Christianity that says, you know, there's all these blind guys walking around, right? You know, handless guys, whatever. It's, it's, we don't take it there. But the whole point is, hey, if this causes me to sin, don't have it by your nightstand. If my computer is, is a playground for stuff that shouldn't happen, put a filter on it. If, if going to the gym is a source of temptation, listen to worship music and look down instead of looking around, right? If, if there's a relationship at the office that, that hey, there's, there's, we haven't made it physical yet, but there's a strong emotional connection, get transferred to another department, right? If, if there's a neighbor that you have this temptation towards, like, confess it. Bring in godly friends to help you process this. He says, don't allow yourself to get dragged off into this fiery pit of Gehenna, now or forever. Instead, do what it takes to keep sex within the boundaries that God designed it for. Then verses 31 and 32, you have heard it's the law that says a man cannot divorce his wife by merely giving her a, a, a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife unless she has been unfaithful causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Now there's a lot of different interpretation that's going on here and I don't want to get into it in too fine tooth of a cone. Instead, I'd rather look at the 40,000 foot view and say, what's the heart of this? In the context of what he's writing, he's basically saying, don't have a loveless marriage. Don't run away from a loveless marriage though either. So instead of either fight or flight, maybe seek reconciliation. If we're struggling to love in our relationship, in our marriage relationship, pour into it. Instead of running away and thinking the next one's going to be better, I'm going to bring myself to that too. And, and he or she is going to bring themselves to that too. Now, I know this is a really tricky subject because, because a lot of us have, have maybe been through that, right? But the point is this, is that God didn't design marriage to be a loveless existence. But he also doesn't want us to run from relationship in relationship, person to person, trying to have them find wholeness. One of the greatest books that you can read downstairs is Families Where Grace is in Place. 
Because when God's grace is at the place of the center of our lives, now God is the one that's filling us up. The Spirit's the one working through us instead of, I need my wife to make, I'm not okay, so you change. That's the world's model, right? I'm not okay, so you change. You complete me, right? Hate that movie. Don't ever watch it. It's awful. (laughs) For so many reasons. The point of marriage isn't to not divorce. The point of a marriage is to have a relationship that honors and reflects the giver of that gift. So pursue love in that. And he says, hey, and what's, what's kind of interesting is, is that he uses adultery and he uses unfaithfulness. The adultery word is, is moichio, which means sex outside of marriage, and the unfaithful word is pornea. Sound familiar, right? It is an ongoing immoral lifestyle. So it's kind of like, oh, we messed up. Hey, can we find reconciliation? It's kind of like, basically, the only out here that he gives is if, is if your spouse is completely unrepentant and unwilling to turn around. But even with that, guys, in the Old Testament, God is a faithful husband of an adulterous wife. Us. That's the standard. As Christ loved the church. I, our church is perfect, so we, we get a hall pass on that, right? <laughs> Guys, we're not perfect. We screw up. I screw up. We're a mess. But God consistently shows up to woo us back, to show himself faithful even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. Verses 33 through 37, you have heard, also heard it said that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say... Do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne, not yours. I added that myself. And do not say by earth, because the earth is his footstool, not ours. Right? And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of their great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. I would settle for being able to have a white hair if I could just keep them all. Right? I was looking this morning, I was like, God, really? I'm getting gray here and I'm losing it here. It's the best of both worlds. Come on. There we go. But he says, you, you don't have choice in that, right? You can try all you want, but it's, it's not yours. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. A couple weeks ago in men's Bible study, we looked at James chapter 5, verse 12. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. The whole point is just be honest. Have integrity. Don't spin lies that you have to spin other lies to go. And by the way, don't try to use what belongs only to God as collateral for our lies. Does that make sense? Because basically swearing an oath is, is basically saying, you know, by my grandpa's tomb, right? I don't, that doesn't belong to me. How can I claim ownership over that to, to be collateral for this commitment that I made? It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't belong to me. It's God's. And so he says, just be honest, have integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 38 through, 40, uh, through 42, you've heard it said that the law, um, you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Revenge belongs to God only. 
What's interesting is that these, the, the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was actually meant to limit revenge, not promote it. Because they were saying, hey, if all of a sudden, if someone, you know, trips you in class, don't stand up and wail off with a haymaker. Like, that's not really very fair, right? In, in the Old Testament, it was basically, hey, like, don't surpass. Otherwise, we get stuck in these revenge cycles to where you, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you worse. Well, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you worse. Now, what are we doing? We're just spiraling in this endless revenge cycle. Now, what's interesting is that a, he, he specifically says a slap in the face. Slap in the face was not meant to cause physical harm. It was meant to do emotional harm. It was an insult. And so what he basically says is practice creative resistance. You're going to slap me? Okay, here's my other cheek. Now who's looking goofy? You want me to carry your, carry your gear for a mile? I'll carry it for two. Let's go, right? Sometimes the best resistance is, is to turn things around to where it's sort of like, you're going to try to hurt me, but I, ch- I refuse to be offended, right? It takes two to tango. And Jesus is saying, creatively remove yourself. Have you ever been in, in a situation to where your, your, your anger, your revenge is so explosive that all of a sudden you look back and just say, what did I just do? I looked really, really stupid. I will never forget in high school, I just got in the car and I was very, very proud of this car and I was cruising around our little town, all two blocks of Main Street with my windows down. It was summer playing some awesome tunes, right? And all of a sudden, some upperclassmen, I was, I was like going into my junior year, some guys that had just graduated threw water balloons into my car and exploded all over. I was so mad, I flip a Yui in the middle of the street and run them down into the parking lot, and I run after them. And, and I mean, I cussed as a kid, but I wasn't cussing enough at that point to be able to try to string together the combinations that I was trying to. <laughs> And I was like, you know, it was like, they were like, whoa, he's speaking in tongues. This is what's going on here, right? But in my mind, I was so infuriated, I was going to make them hurt by my words. And what do they do? They laughed at me. They laughed at me. And what did I have to do? There was a bunch of them, and there was only one of me. So I went back into my sopping wet new car, and I drove off in shame. Right? He says, don't, just say, what I could have done was like, hey, thanks. I had my windows down and I was hot anyhow, so thanks for cooling me off, bros. Like, way to go, right? <laughs> Jesus is saying, don't allow ourselves to get sucked into the revenge cycle. Don't feed it. Get out of it. Last section. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is it for you? But even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, in this culture, in this, in this system, hatred for your enemies was not only accepted, it was encouraged. We are the proud chosen people of God. It's us versus everyone. You see, they, they kind of slipped over the whole thing in Genesis where God calls Abraham 
to be his chosen people so that they will be a blessing to the nations. Kind of omitted that part. And somewhere along the line, in the whole conquest of everything, in the defense of everything, they forgot, they took their eyes off the prize that they were there, they were chosen to be a blessing. And if you play the movie out, we know how it ends up, right? They are so jealous that Jesus is hanging out with the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the Gentiles, that they killed him. And then later on, we see in full picture of like, oh, we missed it. They got it. Instead of hating our enemies, maybe we should have loved them and forgiven them. You see, they didn't want a king who would forgive because that would not make for a very good military commander. Instead, he goes, like we talked about last week, let's go on this rescue mission with our Savior. They were like Jonah who wanted a military leader to crush their enemies, not save them. Jonah's the anti-hero, guys. I'm sorry to ruin all of our childhoods, but Jonah was not the willing, faithful servant who went and won the Ninevites over to God. No, he was so mad, he refused to go. When he finally went, he's like, fine, I'll preach the good news of your salvation. And then he goes up on top of the hill and he says, now I'm going to watch him burn because there's no way that those evil people will ever turn to you, God. And when all of a sudden they say, this guy's right, let's turn to God. Does Jonah go, Yay! No, he gets so mad. He accuses God. He, like Satan, uses God's word against him. I knew that you were faithful. I knew that you were loving. I knew that you would be soft on these jerks. And I know better than you. We don't want to be there. We don't want to have God say, oh, okay, if that's what you think, then I'll go with your plan instead, right? Here's the big idea from this whole chapter. Jesus wants our hearts. Jesus wants our hearts. He doesn't just want us to go through the motions. He doesn't give us a list or a list of lists to, to perfect blindly, to I'm, I'm duty, obligation, and when I be stuck on this endless treadmill of performance. That's not life-giving, Right? Jesus came to show the true meaning of the law. He wanted us to see the meaning and the tent behind it. The Pharisees were experts in the law, but they completely missed the whole point. Jesus and the freedom that he gives. In Matthew 23, verse 24, later on, we'll get to this uh, in a couple years probably, um, Jesus says that the Pharisees strain out gnats because what happened was that they would have their wine in, 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 in like big barrels and stuff. And before they would drink it, they were so preoccupied with not drinking the gnats because gnats were unclean insects. And, and far be it from me from drink, drinking an unclean gnat. And so they would literally, before they would drink their wine, they would strain it out to make sure that no gnats had settled in there. Because I could go to hell if I drank one little gnat. And Jesus says, you hypocrites. You strain out gnats, but swallow camels whole. You have the smallest of the unclean. Oh, I'm not going to do that. But they willfully drink the biggest of the unclean. They were clueless. They had no idea. Pharisees believed that the law and their efforts to fulfill and live out the law is what made them acceptable to and right with God. We, in that, in, that, in that world, 
we are the active agent in our salvation. It's my ability to obey the rules and the laws that God gives us so that I can be worthy, so that I can be loved, so that I can be saved, so that I, 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 I. Jesus is merely a side actor in our movie. I love how Paul David Tripp says, don't look horizontally for what can only be found vertically. Don't look for each other. Don't look for our performance. Don't look for, for this church. Don't look for our family. Don't look for our, our bank account. Don't look for anything like that to make us more lovable, acceptable to God. He, he tells his people, you make all these sacrifices. You go through all the motions, but you don't even know me. Your hearts are so distant from me. You're so busy cannibalizing each other that you're missing the whole point of the heart of the law. The law was meant to show us how to not kill each other in the process of getting through this life and spending eternity with God. There is a heart and an intent behind it. We can't take it. Another way that Paul David Tripp says, don't look horizontally for what has already been provided vertically for us. You guys know the, the, the painters, they have these huge canvases and they're up there for like five, 10 minutes just slapping paint on and you're like, I don't, I don't see it, right? Am I, anybody else seeing that, right? I don't, it's just a bunch of squiggly messes and bright colors and everything like that and you're kind of like, I don't get it. And all of a sudden, he goes up, she goes up, flips upside down and you're kind of like, oh, it's perfect. This is what Jesus just did. He is an artist. And he just took thousands of years of history, of law, of religion, of civilization. And everybody's like, no, I, I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's that, it's that. I see it right there. No, yep. We got to do it. Nobody got it until Jesus flipped it around and said, I came to fulfill the meaning of the law. He helps us to see what's really going on. He systematically takes the teachings of the Old Testament and he flips them on their head to show the heart behind him. He contrasts the values of the world with the values of his kingdom. Instead of superficial, he makes them real. Our righteousness needs to come from what Jesus has done in us, not what we are able to accomplish for him. We need to be Jesus-centered, not me-centered. We can't focus on the externals. We need to get to matters of the heart. Spoiler alert, your heart, my heart, all of our hearts, we need Jesus. I've, I've been hearing a lot where, well, God knows my heart. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he knows my heart too. And that's why I'm so thankful for the cross of Jesus, because he paid the price for my rotten heart. Even at my best moments, it's like filthy rags, right? The best things that I do are irrelevant. They're filthy rags compared to the beauty of what he did on the cross for you and for me. There's freedom in that. I get to live in that and live from that, not try to achieve for that. Amen? 
the Life Application Study Bible says it perfectly. We miss the intent of God's word when we read his rules for living without trying to understand why he made them. We have to keep the full focus instead of just focusing on a couple things here and there, cherry-picking it, right? Think about it. Context is king. What is the context when he's talking about the law? Jesus is not going to contradict what is later said in the book of John or what would eventually be written in, in what became the New Testament, right? Really quickly, John 1.17 says that the law came from Moses, but grace and truth came from Jesus. Romans 6.14 says we are under Jesus' grace, not the law. Romans 7.4, we are dead to the law and alive to Christ. Romans 10.3-4, we're made right with God through Jesus, not the law. Galatians 2.21, if the law could make us right with God, then we wouldn't even need Jesus. The guy wouldn't even need a hung on the cross. If the law was good enough to save us, Jesus is just some idiot who's doing some goofy thing for a show. There's no point to it if the law could save us, if it could make us right. Instead, Jesus was needed to come. It was necessary. Galatians 3.11-12, through 12, no one can be made right with God through the law. Jesus has rescued us from the curse of the law. Galatians 5.1, we're no longer under the yoke of slavery to the law. Ephesians 2.14-16, Jesus ends the hostile barrier that the law puts up between us and God. And he abolishes it with the cross. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, Philippians 3, 9. We are made right with God through faith in the grace of Jesus and not by obeying the law. Galatians 3, 24 through 26. The law was a babysitter that we don't need anymore because our real parent is here. That is a powerful passage. It says, literally, it says it's our guardian. A guardian was basically someone who is basically a babysitter. The law was the babysitter. But what would happen if all of a sudden you would come home and all of a sudden your child says, no, babysitter's my parent now? That was never the intent. They were just there to keep you safe. Jesus is what it's really about. Again, Jesus wants our hearts, not for us to just go through the motions. His kingdom is better than that. So how do we move from belief to action, knowing to doing? I want to encourage us to do one thing this week. One thing, because it's just so quick and easy. <laughs> the heart is what matters. Tell ourselves, tell each other, remind ourselves and each other that the heart is what really matters. Why? Not because my actions don't matter. No, it's because out of our heart, everything else flows. If we try to change our behavior without first changing our hearts, we will be eternally frustrated. We will turn Jesus into a behavior management and sin control device. He didn't come for that. He didn't hang on the cross just so that we could be better people. It's so much more powerful than that. If we want to change our behavior, we have to look to our heart first. So this week, I want to encourage us to do this. Do a heart check. And if you need help in how to do a, chart, uh, a heart check, Jesus gave, gave us a pop quiz at the beginning of the chapter. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Read through the Beatitudes and ask yourselves, does that describe me? If we feel angsty, if we feel defensive, if we feel like, well, you don't understand, if, you know, read through the rest of the chapter, right? Look at anger, sex, marriage, divorce, 
uh, uh, revenge, forgiveness. Read through those. That will reveal to us. Pray Psalm 139. Search me and know me, O God. If there's any offensive way in me, reveal it to me. So then lead me in your way everlasting. We have to turn our hearts over to Jesus. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He gives us his spirit so that we live in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's how we as followers of Jesus are to be described. If you love Jesus, if you consider yourselves to be a follower of him, let's do the work here. Let's surrender our hearts to him. Let's do the heart check. Let's maybe enlist the help of, of some friends that, that we respect, that we look up to. If, if we find ourselves bound up in all these other things, do the work. If you haven't met Jesus yet, if you haven't surrendered your life to him, I'd encourage you to do a side-by-side comparison. Kingdom of the world, kingdom of God. This chapter is absolute foolishness to the world. But I think if we're honest, if we really dive into this, it's a life that most of us would want to live. If we're really honest with ourselves, we don't want to be stuck in the revenge cycles. We don't want to have explosive anger. We don't want to be constantly justifying ourselves and defending ourselves. I'd invite you this week to read through this and to examine, hey, is this something that I want to be a part of? Is this something that I want to give myself to? That is my prayer for each one of us today, this week, for the rest of our lives, and more importantly, for all eternity, to walk in the fullness of a relationship, a heart surrendered to Jesus now and forever. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much. I know that's a lot. That is a lot. But God, we also recognize that it's very um, applicable to our lives. God, probably every single one of us in one way or another this morning has maybe sensed your spirit moving. Um, Just looking at where we're at in our lives and our relationships, in our hearts, in our minds. God, I pray that we would just surrender, God, that we wouldn't come to you as as a cruel taskmaster who's just waiting for us to screw up and we have to make ourselves right. No, God, the burden, like we talked about last week, the burden is what qualifies us to come to you. You died for that. You love us in the midst of that. God, if anybody here this morning or online or listening to it later on, God, if, if, if the Spirit's just speaking to you right now, God, I pray that we would run to your freedom. It's not complicated. It's just saying, Jesus, I give you my life. I want to be yours. I am yours. I want to receive a new identity. I want to receive a new reality. I want to receive a new eternity because of you. God, I want to experience the freedom. I know that the storms won't magically disappear, but God, I want to find calm in the midst of the storms. God, that the circumstances don't direct or determine the reality of my life. You do. God, you, your goodness, your love, your mercy, your grace is more powerful than any other thing we will ever face in this life. God, we thank you for that. We surrender to that. God, we love you for that. Pray these things in your name. Amen.